0: Good evening. It's, it's good to be with you here this evening. I, I was away um, preaching in Beaver Presbyterian this morning. Um, I bring with me the, the best wishes of that congregation. We, we have a, a good connection with them and, and knowledge of them, so um, it's good to be back here with you this evening. Perhaps you'd join me in praying uh, again for, for God's help as we come to this admittedly uh, difficult of God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this evening with a very strong sense that we will rely on you in this next while to understand what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, we thank you for your Word we thank you that it takes us to places that we would not otherwise go. We thank you that it raises our, our sight, gives us new horizons. And Lord, we pray that this evening we'd pay attention and would submit to what you teach us in your word. Amen. I was having a, a chat with Claire recently, and she asked me why. I was preaching uh, what I am preaching these days. And it struck me as an interesting question. Uh, A question that she was absolutely entitled to ask, a question that anybody in a church should be able to ask at any time. Why are we choosing to focus on a particular book or a particular biblical theme at a particular point in time? So why Romans and why now Well, if you've been around Kirkpatrick Memorial at all during the last couple of years, you'll know that this church is absolutely committed to reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ, to doing that locally here in our community, uh, and also to do that right across the world as we're able. We've been learning about our community. We've been learning about ourselves. Uh, We've been considering what changes we might need to make in our church life if we're to become a gospel-centered church, better equipped to bring Jesus to the world. So all of that's been very much on our horizons at recent times, and herein lies the answer to our question, why Romans and why now? Romans is the part of the Bible that gives the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're serious about getting involved with our community, showing the love of Jesus there, that we might share the message of Jesus, then we need to commit ourselves individually and certainly as a corporate expression of God's family. We need to understand the message of the gospel as fully as we possibly can. And that's why we're looking just now at Romans. That's why I've chosen to do this now in the autumn of 2010. Actually, I think this is a large part of the reason why Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. It's because he was about to begin a new evangelistic activity. Turn with me quickly to Romans 15. We wouldn't come to this for months unless we chose to flick over the pages now. So Romans 15, verses 23 to 24 The NIV title suggests that this is part of the letter where Paul's talking about his plans to visit Rome. He's writing his letter, but he also plans to come and visit. And he says, verse 23, now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and that's the region that we would call modern-day Greece, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's planning a brand new venture in mission. He wants to go to Spain, and he wants the church in Rome to support him on this missions trip. So before he goes to Spain, before he makes his journey to Rome, he's beginning to to educate this community in Rome He wants them to know the gospel, that they might be strong partners with him in the gospel. If they're fully convinced of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, then they're just the kind of people who understand uh, Paul's Paul's mission and will, will prayerfully support him. So Romans is written for a community that's about to be involved in a gospel outreach. I think that makes it a a very good uh, letter, a very good part of God's Word for us at Kirkpatrick Memorial to be reading just now. A couple of weeks ago, Claire and I took our kids on the biannual trip to the dentist. The kids love it. They bound in, jump up onto the seat and lie back and the seat goes up and the big light shines down in their eyes and When it's all over, they get to use exotic-colored mouthwash, and then, to trump it all, a sticker on the way out. There's nothing quite like a trip to the dentist. At least that's what the kids think. Claire and I have a a different perspective on it. This particular visit, the dentist decided that the normal oral examination wouldn't be enough, that it was time Claire and I both had an X-ray. It seems to me that the purpose of that x-ray is pretty obvious. The the dentist wanted to look beneath the surface of things. You see, it's quite possible that on looking into our mouths, there'd be some teeth that look on the surface healthy. But in fact, they could well be diseased right in the roots and in their core. So long as we only look at the surface, we can be satisfied with how things look and miss the rot that's going on in the center a dental x-ray isn't something that I would generally want to, to experience too often but it's absolutely necessary if we're to understand what's really the state of our teeth and then to receive the treatment that's appropriate for them our passage this evening the second half of Romans 1 is Paul's X ray of humanity. He takes a long, hard look beneath the surface and he looks at human beings, particularly in relation to their creator God. At any given time, humanity may have all sorts of great things going on, all sorts of leaps forward in knowledge and in science, all sorts of of gestures of goodwill and of kindness. But Paul goes deeper. He shows us what he sees, and he says, in effect, look, here it is. Here's the decay, the disease. This is why the world desperately needs the gospel. If you remember last week, we looked at the first 17 verses of the chapter, and Paul talks there about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in the most glowing terms. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. It, it's wonderful stuff. He tells us how glorious the gospel is. But now, he goes on to show us why we need the gospel. The gospel isn't good news in a vacuum. The gospel is good news in a world that's gone horribly and, and right to its core gone wrong. This evening, uh, I'm comparing this passage as an x-ray in the state of humanity. Let's take the x-ray result, that gray acetate that you see when you watch your, your TV shows about hospital life, and let's hold it against the light. Let's see what Paul's x-ray has to say about humankind. In verse 18... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. These words that Paul's using, they are somewhat differentiated from each other. When he talks about godlessness, he's talking about what's gone wrong in the vertical dimension. Sin, first and foremost, is a failure to take God seriously. We live as if God doesn't matter or as if he isn't there. That's godlessness. When Paul speaks about wickedness, he's more on the horizontal level. Wickedness has to do with how we treat each other. So the hatred and the injustice that mars life on this planet, that's that's the result of wickedness in the human heart. And the thing is that these two go hand in hand. Godless people can be wicked people and Paul says that godless and wicked people tend to suppress the truth since what may be known about God is plain to them you see human beings the Bible teaches were made to know, to worship to love and to serve their creator God that's how it always was and always will be that that way of living It demands a kind of humility though, doesn't it? A willingness to let God be God. To celebrate and honor Him as God. To acknowledge His power over the world. Paul says here that human beings haven't lost their sense of God's power and deity. He says they've chosen to suppress this truth. Instead of honoring God and giving thanks to him, we suppress the truth that we know about God. So in verse 20, Paul points out evidence that human beings must ignore if they're to choose godless living. All around us, there's evidence of a creator God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, So that men are without excuse. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott gives a couple of examples of how modern scientific people have seen the evidence that creation has placed before them and have seen it pointing to the Creator God. He tells how, after the satellite detection of the birth pangs of the universe was announced by the American Physical Society. In April 1992, an anonymous contributor to The Guardian wrote this. It's difficult to know what the appropriate reaction to such mind-expanding discoveries should be except to get down on one's knees in total humility and to give thanks to God or Big Bang or both for cunningly contriving to allow this infinitesimal part of the universe called earth to be bestowed with something called air. The fact that there's air to breathe, a hospitable environment in the middle of this huge universe, points clearly to a creator God. Stott tells also of a consultant surgeon He's writing about something much smaller than the, the huge universe. He's writing about a single biological cell. He says, The coordination of the complex activities of the cell in a common purpose hits the scientific part of me as the best possible evidence for an ultimate purpose. Folks, whether we're talking about a vast universe or, or a microscopic cell, God's invisible qualities can be seen in his creation. It requires an act of suppression to deny him. Paul says that men are without excuse. Verses 18 to 23 of Romans chapter 1 describe humanity as a race that's in deliberate rebellion against its creator. We've ref- we've replaced the truth with a lie. Friends, we are fools when we live like this. There's no more absurd way to live than idolatry. To live in the world that God's created as if God doesn't exist, worshipping something other than God. It's intellectually irresponsible. It's crazy. We make gods for ourselves, and we make gods of ourselves. I'm not talking now about the ancient practice of lifting a piece of stone or wood and and carving a physical idol out of it. Our modern West has far surpassed any of of those ancient cultures in the way we can mass-produce our idols The number of things that we can find to worship, whether it's money, sex, power, all the the specific expressions of them that dominate our media and our imaginations. One, One theologian once said that God has made us in his image and we live the whole of our lives trying to repay the favor. We try to make God in our image. We choose to create our gods in our image, like us. And it's ridiculous. But this is the way of humankind. Paul's x-ray reveals a people who are rotten to the core. They're fundamentally off the rails, Paul tells us. They're in open rebellion against their creator. So he tells us in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of this. Now, wait a minute. Something inside of us wants to say. Paul, this all sounds a little bit Old Testament for my liking, this chat about the wrath of God. Doesn't Jesus say that to be angry with your brother is like murder? And Paul, you yourself, don't you write in your letter to the the Brothers and sisters in Ephesus, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. How then can you talk about the wrath of God? When we think about the wrath of God, we're inclined to think that it's something like our anger. But that's not a helpful way of thinking. John Stott says that the wrath of God is almost entirely different from human anger. It doesn't mean that God loses his temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary. His wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. I was trying to capture a little of how, how we might want to respond when we discover God's wrath against evil in the world. In our modern semi-slang, we encourage people, whenever they get too caught up, too hot under the collar about something, we encourage them to get over it. Just get over it. And when it comes to evil in this world and in our lives, we somehow somehow wish that, that God would get over it. God doesn't. And he won't ever get over it. Because God cares passionately about his world and he cares passionately about the human beings that he's created. So any type of activity which which damages or defaces or destroys the world or human beings, God will not tolerate. He will not let those go on forever. Rape, murder, murder, torture, economic oppression. The the list could go on, and, and it will go on later in the chapter. God hates them all, and they make him angry. Folks, this can be difficult for us in a very permissive culture. Difficult to understand, but let's be clear about this. If God were not angry, about sin in the world, he would not be a good God. All evil makes God angry and it meets with his wrath. So Paul tells us right in the opening verse of our passage that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How's that happening? How is God's wrath being revealed? When in this chapter, Paul doesn't point us to the final judgment and say, Look out, there's something coming in the future. That's a biblical reality, but it's not what Paul talks about here. Paul doesn't in this chapter point us to the the public administration of God's justice by the state. Look out, because you will be held accountable in the courts of the land. That's an argument that will come later in Romans. In this case, in the argument of Romans 1, Paul tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed in the present by the way in which God allows human beings to follow the evil inclinations of their own hearts. Look at the last nine verses of the chapter, beginning at verse 24. There's an ominous three times repeated refrain there. God gave them over to sexual impurity, verse 24. God gave them over to shameful lusts, verse 26. God gave them over to a depraved mind, verse 28. God giving us over to ourselves... That's judicial language. It's God handing us over to receive a just sentence. Friends, when God gives human beings responsibility, he means it. He lets us choose what we want, and he lets us get on with it. So we can hardly argue that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. When God withdraws his restraining and guiding hand, The Bible says that that is a present expression of his wrath. This is how God chooses to punish sin in the present. He lets us get on with it. Folks, it's not going to make pretty reading, but let's spend a few moments thinking about these three areas in which God has given human beings over to the evil that rules in their hearts. Firstly, verses 24 to 25, sexual impurity. Notice here that Paul links sexual impurity with idolatry. Verse 25, the reason why human beings are prone to sexual impurity is that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. I don't know if you've noticed this. In our passage this evening, have you heard the echoes of Genesis one and two in what we've read here? Two things in particular, and Paul relates them. There's a lot of chat here about the image of God, and there's a lot of chat about sexuality, male and female. So, what do we read in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-seven? So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Informed by Genesis 1, Paul understands human sexuality not as random or as arbitrary. Human beings have been created in God's image. They're commanded to be fruitful and to celebrate in their male and female complementarity the abundant life-giving life giving capacity of God's good world. Tom Wright puts it like this males and females are very different and they're designed to work together to make with God the music of creation when human beings reject God's truth when they replace it with a lie, God God's judgment is to give them over To the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. A false image of God leads to a false image of human sexuality. Paul doesn't tell us here exactly what kind of immorality he has in mind, except that it involves the degrading of their bodies with one another. Paul doesn't need to tell us, does he? Pick up any tabloid newspaper. Be careful every time you go onto the internet. We're surrounded by ample evidence that we naturally choose to be degraded in our sexuality. Paul's right illicit sex degrades people's humanness. Sex in marriage, as God intended, is God's good gift. I'd prefer not to, but let's continue on this spiral of decline. In verses 27 to 28, Paul talks about a second related area in which God gives humanity over to its own desire. He gave them over to shameful lusts. And Paul talks here particularly about homosexual activity between women and between men. I think the inclusion of homosexuality at this point in Paul's argument poses a question for the church. The why question. Why does Paul choose to focus on homosexuality? I believe the church has often got the answer to this question wrong. The church has said something along the lines that homosexuality is particularly repulsive. Homosexuality is clearer, a greater sin than most others. And that's why we imagine that Paul's included it at this point in his argument. Paul's thinking of the worst sin imaginable, and he brings it to his discussion. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that when we read verses 27 and 28 in the context of Paul's whole argument we come to a different conclusion. Remember, the creation account of Genesis 1 is still the brightly lit backdrop against which Paul's holding up his x-ray. Whenever he singles out homosexuality, his point is that in a world where God created male and female, this is not what men and women were created for. My task this evening is not to give you a comprehensive theology of homosexuality. It's to open up for you this particular part of God's Word, but I don't want, however, to skirt this issue. Homosexuality is increasingly on the agenda for the church. Whether it's the ordination of practicing homosexuals or the freedom to say in public that homosexuality is wrong, Or whether it's pastoring people who struggle with this temptation in their lives. These issues are here. And we need to learn, as we do in every other walk of life, to think well and biblically about them. Could I recommend a book to you? If this is something that you want to learn more about, and equip yourself to think well about. Thomas Schmidt's book, Straight and Narrow, is excellent. I read it some time ago and immediately bought a copy for our church library. Now, our church library isn't open for business yet, but someday it will be. I bought this book because I wanted it to be there available for anyone to borrow and to benefit from. What I've found particularly useful about this book is the way in which it doesn't, doesn't go through the Bible lifting the few verses that talk about homosexuality and try to cobble together a view of homosexuality. What it does instead is it discusses homosexuality in the broader biblical context of sexuality. What is God's intended best for human sexuality? And just one quotation from the book to give you a flavor of, of Schmidt's conclusions. The biblical view of sexuality does not depend on lists of prohibited activities, but on the pervasiveness and reasonableness of an affirmed activity, heterosexual behavior. His point basically is this, that God's will for human sexuality is the heterosexual relationship of one man with one woman. Anything that undermines that is abhorrent to God. And that's why as you read the New Testament, homosexuality actually isn't elevated oftentimes over and above other more acceptable sins in our culture such as fornication and adultery. Homosexuality stands side by side with those. These sins all as, as those which undermine God's good gift of heterosexual marriage. Folks, there's much more that could be said and probably needs to be said, but tonight we're, we're preaching Romans chapter 1. We're almost finished with tonight's passage, and I believe that we'd be on massively dangerous ground if we stopped here. Because we're feeling a little self-righteous, many of us perhaps, Maybe these sins that Paul's talked about so far, sexual immorality, homosexuality, aren't ones that we're particularly troubled with. We're feeling smug. Whatever kind of people Paul's talking about here, it's not us. In the last few verses of the chapter, Paul pulls the rug from under our feet, every last one of us. In verse 28 Paul speaks one last time of an area where God has given human beings over to a depraved mind, he says, to do what ought not to be done, and then he lists 21 different sins or vices. Everything from murder to gossip to not doing not obeying your parents. Look look for a moment at that list. Verses 29 to 31. It's not a pretty picture, but it's a realistic one. I recognize the people that Paul's talking about. I saw them looking at me from the front page of the tabloid newspapers when I went into the filling station today. I saw one of them looking me in the eye when I shaved in the front of the mirror. We are all, every one of us, hopelessly lost in sin. We have wandered so far from the glory God intended for us that wonderful world that he created, that place that he gave us as our home, that place where everything was very good, we're lost. Folks, we're going to finish now for this evening, but in this passage we've seen clearly why the world needs the gospel. Left to our own devices, we we run from our Creator God. Left to our own devices, we choose ways of life that destroy us in the present and will destroy us eternally. And for the time being, God's judgment expresses itself in allowing us to get on with it. Paul's description of this chapter in this chapter is not, this isn't God's ultimate judgment on sin. For that, we have still to wait. Before there will be good news, there's worse news to come. But folks, if we are wise we will wake up to what we've seen already in chapter 1. We'll see already how far gone we are and how lost we are without Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Reading Romans chapter 1, we want to throw ourselves entirely on the mercy of God. Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, when we read of your wrath and when we think of the kind of people on whom it might fall, we're inclined to think of others. We're inclined to think of the sexually immoral, those whose sexuality isn't like ours, those who murder and rape and kill. But Lord, you've shown us here that every last one of us, humanity as a whole, has turned from you. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. Your beauty for smut. Lord, we thank you that you've done something about that. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that as we see these things and honestly engage with them, that our gratitude to you and our love for you would grow and grow and grow. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.